Uh, so we're going to be in John chapter 8, and so if you want to get your Bibles uh, open, the apps over to John chapter 8, go ahead and do that. But before we do that, we want to have some more fun with you guys. We've kind of been doing this in this series, asking kind of a, a fun question, and definitely for those of you who are watching online, we'd love for you to interact and engage with this as well. But here's the question. What is your pregame ritual? I know we got some athletes here in the room or former athletes in the room. What is your pregame ritual? And why you think about that, don't, dis- don't disqualify yourself because everybody has a game, right? Now, you might be like one of those folks like, that you have to prepare yourself uh, before that meeting or before that test. Uh, maybe it's before the sales call and you're like Dwight Schrute and you gotta, you got to blare the heavy metal music in your uh, Thunderbird or whatever he drove. Or, or maybe you're like George Costanza and you got to pregame before a phone call and you got to write out the things that you're going to talk about to keep the conversation going. Or, or maybe it's just your pregame ritual is a cup of coffee in the morning. Uh, but I, I, I can think about, you know, particularly an ath- athletes that would do this and they would have a certain song or would have to tie their shoes a certain way or, or they would have to, when they ran out to the baseball diamond, they couldn't step on the chalk on the foul line. I, I, maybe you watched the, uh, uh, the Michael Jordan uh, documentary, uh, the, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic and talked about how Jordan would, would almost wouldn't almost, would manufacture slights and rivalries and things that people had said about him just to kind of get him psyched up. And he would just kind of have to create this story in his head. Uh, you've heard about other athletes that almost have like rabbit ears, like they hear everything and they're always looking for somebody that's going to be disrespectful to them. Uh, they said that Ted Williams would, would buy all the papers, all the Boston papers at the time, five or six of them. He would read all the sports columns just to see what people had to say about him. Because we all have kind of a pregame ritual. Uh, maybe for you it was a song, or maybe for you it was something that you ate, or, or just a routine that you had. It was somehow, the idea of it was it was going to psych you up. It was going to help you kind of achieve something. It was going to help you perform a little bit better. Uh, maybe, maybe for you, it was just that you kind of had to collect yourself a little bit. You know, that certain family member was coming over, or you're walking into that work environment. You just kind of prepare yourself. You had to kind of run through your head, okay, what happens if they bring up this? What happens if this conversation happens? Because we all have a pregame ritual because we, wanna, we kind of want to challenge ourselves, right? We want to challenge, push ourselves to somehow doing something better, right? And it's all about this idea of, like, if I could push myself, if I could challenge myself to just work that little much harder, to give that little bit more effort, to pay attention that little bit more, I'll somehow be better. So all of that challenge, all that challenge we issue to ourselves is about performance, right? Whatever it is, it's about performance. When we think about this in terms of our, our passage today in John chapter 8, we're going to see where challenges are issued. But it's not about just trying harder. All right, so we're going to be in John chapter 8, and uh, we're going to start in verse 2. John chapter 8, starting in verse 2, and it'll be on the screen as well. We pick up the story, what Jesus is doing. He says, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. 
When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who had begun to go, those who had heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now this is one of those stories of the Bible, and there's all kinds of interesting backstory about who wrote this, and there might be little footnotes in your Bibles. I would encourage you to read and look at it, but it's interesting because it's here, and we have this in this collection, we have this in this gospel, and it fits it fits, even though there's some different language, there's some different things, it fits with the larger story that John is telling about Jesus. And this is such a popular story, maybe you've actually heard the phrase, he without sin cast the first stone, right? Like this idea that you can't judge me. You can't judge other people without knowing what they're going through or without examining yourself. And that's a, that's a true thing. And often what we do with this story is we just make it kind of a commentary on sin and a commentary of grace and how Jesus treats other people. And that's a good thing, right? That's a, that's a true statement. There are absolutely true things there. But we should realize there's more going on. See, this is about what happens when challenges or corrections are issued. This is about what happens when people are challenging and correcting one another and what we do with it and how we're motivated to it. So there's kind of three angles of this story. There's kind of three different things I want to look at. The first is the accusers, okay? So this is the people holding the rocks who have dragged this woman out here. Here's the, the accused is our second one, the accused being this woman. And the third thing I want to look at is the model that Jesus is giving us here about how we are to live. So the accusers, the accused, and the model. We'll start first with the accusers. See, they are interacting with sin, they're clearly, without a doubt, there's, there's been huge mistakes that have been made here. Now, these re religious leaders are, are interacting with sin, but they don't see themselves at first as being sinful. Now, first, let me back up here. When I say sinning, I'm not saying that they are breaking a rule, okay? What I'm saying is that they are missing the best. They're missing what God ultimately intends. And so, in some ways, that limits the definition of sin, but in most ways, it expands it far, far beyond what we might assume at first. Because sin is not just a transgression. It's not just make, messing up or making a mistake or doing something blatant. It is anything that takes us away from God's best. Now, these religious leaders are sinning because they are taking the law and they are bending it to their agenda. So what is their agenda? Look at what is there in uh, chapter 8. It says, they were using this question as a trap in order to have basis for accusing him. So they are trying to set Jesus up. This is at least somewhat of a fabricated situation. Now, there's some obvious questions that we ask about this woman, right? She is dragged into the temple courts, accused of committing adultery. Now, I'm going to assume that if she was committing adultery, it wasn't happening in the temple courts, right? So she has been brought from a third location here, in front of Jesus. She is experiencing shame. Now, I'm not a biologist. I don't understand everything, but I think it takes two people to commit adultery, right? And so the guy here is somehow exempt from all of this. 
I don't know what's happening to him, but, but the woman is the only one brought here. So these religious leaders are trying to fabricate a situation. Maybe she's committing adultery. Maybe she wasn't. We don't really know. But she is brought here with all this shame and all this judgment so these leaders can set up a trap. But what should their agenda be, these religious leaders? What, what should they be trying to do instead of setting up Jesus? We read in Deuteronomy chapter 16, Deuteronomy being one of those first five books of the Bible, these, the Torah that these religious leaders would have had memorized. We read this starting in verse 18. It says, appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept the bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving to you. So so God is laying out here in this law this kind of idea of of fairness, uh, idea of of proper judgment. Don't don't allow things to be twisted. Don't allow it to be influenced from the outside like a bribe or an agenda to to, uh, frame this Jesus. The Old Testament law is clear elsewhere that in cases such as this, both parties are guilty. Both parties need judgment passed on them. Here it's just the woman. The Old Testament law is also clear that it's not just something that can be done with hearsay. There has to be proof. There has to be some witness testimony. You have to kind of catch someone in the act. Maybe that's what happened with this woman, but it's not necessarily clear. So I see this as they're perverting justice. They're showing partiality. Maybe there were bribes. Maybe there was coercion going on here. And Jesus comes along, and he's reinforcing something. You know, see, Jesus is not going to shy away from sin. He's not going to shy away from calling things out. We see him do that over and over and over again. But what is his mission? What is his agenda here? His agenda is justice. His agenda isn't just to point out right and wrong. It isn't just so people are put in the right and wrong camps. It's so people experience justice. They are freed from sin. And sin is when things aren't right. So we have to ask ourselves, is it right to create a situation to accuse someone of something that they may or may not have done? Is it right to humiliate, to shame this person in public? Is it, is it right to do that? And Jesus comes along, he's offering freedom here. See, he, see Jesus is, is clear that he is, he is very clear on what's right and wrong. Think back to chapter 3 of John. Several weeks ago we talked about this, where Jesus comes in and he clears the temple right? He drives out the money changers. He is angry at a perversion of justice. He's angry at the fact that they have taken something that should be pure for for religious ordinances, for people to come and offer sacrifices to worship God. And he clears out these, these money changers, the people that are taking advantage of people. And then that night, he meets with one of the leaders who had at least implicitly authorized those activities. He meets with this religious leader, this guy named Nicodemus. And in that conversation, he reveals, he gets, this is where we get the idea of being born again. We get John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We get all that. In those moments, Jesus could have easily continued to tell Nicodemus how wrong he was. And so he reveals love. He reveals his mission. He says, this is how things should be. This is what I'm doing. See, Jesus is clearly trying to move things in a different direction. He's not just trying to condemn. He's trying to bring people to where they should be. He's trying to bring people to freedom to arrest 
duration. See, followers of Jesus, you and I, we can so easily be in that crowd to condemn, to judge. We have to drop our rocks. Because it is so easy to pick up a rock. It is so easy to point out the flaws. It is so easy to condemn. We have to drop our rocks. In our daily lives, in our work, in our relationships, in our conversations, in how we raise our kids, and in how we challenge and correct one another. If we just pick up our rocks, if we stop there at that condemnation point, at that point where we point out what is in, in fact wrong, we are no better than a member of the mob who's white-knuckling it on a stone. I'm not saying that we should downplay sin. I'm not saying that we should, we should not call things out that are right and wrong, that are outside of God's intent, that are evil, that are sinful, whatever adjective you want to use. The, the fact is that they are wrong, they are wrong. But we can't stop at that condemnation. We can't stop at just calling things out. We have to be willing to move forward to restoration, to forgiving, to loving people who are in the wrong. Because it's not enough just to point out the flaw. We have to be willing to bring people back. It's not enough to say, you shouldn't do this. We have to say, this is why you shouldn't do this. This is outside of God's best. There's a, there's a better life there for those who go down this path, those who follow Jesus. So he goes to the accusers. And he says, listen, you guys are twisting. You are, you are, you are challenging. You're, you're, you're perverting the justice of the law. Drop your rocks. The second angle I want to look at is the accused. Now, the woman has clearly committed a sin. So she is being challenged. She is being corrected in this moment. If she did what they say she did, she is in the wrong. She has committed a sin. Now, I said this isn't just a nice little story about forgiveness, but there is an incredible story about forgiveness within this. Several things I want to point out to you about Jesus' interaction with this woman. First of all, why is Jesus drawing in the dirt? What is Jesus drawing in the dirt? Why would he go and stoop down in the middle of this argument where people are ready to, to hurl rocks at this woman until she stops breathing? Why is it that Jesus would stoop down and draw in the dirt? Is he just trying to defuse the situation? Maybe. But what is he drawing? Well, we, we can only make some guesses here. Uh, we can only make some guesses here. We can only kind of begin to kind of take some look at context and what the early church, those first few centuries of the church, what they taught about this. But we can also begin to say, well, what is Jesus' pattern? What does he typically do? See, this is a really stretched analogy, but G Jesus is kind of like a DJ who's always sampling different things, different pieces of music. He's sampling things. He's bringing a beat or a hook or a line, and he's creating something new out of it. He's often quoting the Old Testament prophets like Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah, and he's quoting them to say, I am agreeing with this. I am taking this and bringing it to fulfillment. I am saying that is true, and I am bringing it completely there. Oftentimes, he's saying more of what's going on when he's quoting these prophets, and oftentimes, he's selectively only picking out certain things. See, these prophets were, were people that would come and kind of try to shake the people, try to jar them out of their complacency or their, their bad habits or their ruts. And they would often use words and actions in provocative and, and evocative ways to kind of create a new way for people to move forward and kind of help them imagine a better way forward in following God. And they would do weird things. They would, they would eat food that was intentionally prepared over a fire fed by excrement. 
They would lay on one side for days on end and then lay on their other side for days on end to prove a larger point. They would call people out. They would do these incredible things. There would often be miracles. There would often be these big showdowns with other power players. And yes, sometimes they would predict the future. But these prophets are often doing these audacious things to say there's something better out there. In Jesus' very first sermon that we read about in Luke chapter 4 in Nazareth, he, he kind of goes home and he, he preaches. And this is the sermon where he says that he has come to announce good news to the poor, to set the captives free. This is something that we know about. But we also read that after he quotes this passage of Scripture from Isaiah, he sets the scroll, scroll to the side, back at the, the table at the front, and he goes to sit down, and the crowd, the audience, isn't there to pat him on the head and say, look, the little boy we knew has grown up, and look how wise he is, and, and good job, Mary, good job, Joseph. They are incensed, and they drive him to the edge of town where they attempt to kill him. Why is that? See, the, the scripture that Jesus quotes from Isaiah, he leaves out one little part at the end, and I think it's intentional. He leaves out one little part at the end that talks about vengeance, about God getting vengeance, about God getting even with the enemies of the people of God. And Jesus leaves it out, and I think it's kind of a commentary to say, that's not what I'm doing here. I'm come to bring good news to the poor, not to shame, humiliate, defeat those who oppose me. And people are incensed. Other times Jesus will quote something knowing that they'll see the larger context and if you remember last week, in the times before, throughout this series on John, Jesus is often referring to living water, most clearly when he's talking to the woman at the well. So what is he doing writing in the dirt? Well, Jeremiah 17, 13 says this, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust, because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water living water jesus was referencing this a lot this idea that's being their names their work their efforts being written in the dust it is meaningless it blows away their judgment lacks anything it is empty see these leaders have forsaken the lord he is telling the woman that their their accusations against her are empty they hold no power and notice again how Jesus talks to the woman. I want to read this section again. It says, But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. While they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Notice how he addresses the woman. The first time he addresses the woman, he says, woman. He mams her. He is using an honorific, a, a title of dignity and respect. This is also the word that John tells us he refers to his mother at the miracle of turning the water into wine at the wedding that he's also going to use for his mother at the cross. When he looks to John, he says, this is now your mother, John, and mother, this is now your son. Take care of each other because I'm not going to be here. 
here. This is the word, the term of respect that he gives to the woman at the well. This is the term of respect that the angels give to Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb, this most high-profile female disciple of Jesus who is essentially and realistically the first preacher of the gospel. He says to this woman who is, I assume, clearly caught in adultery, Maybe she's got the, the equivalent of a robe on, a shift, and she's trying to cover up, and she's embarrassed, and she's shamed, and he uses that respectful term, woman. He's giving her dignity. He's giving her respect in the midst of this. I think it's clear to everyone that she has made some mistakes. It's definitely clear to Jesus. It's definitely clear to this woman, and Jesus gives her respect. See, the accuser, the accusers have to drop their stones because they realize their judgment is, their challenge, their correction is written in sand. It's written in dust and it blows away. The accused realizes in this moment that the challenges and the corrections that are coming from these people are empty, but they're still something else. There is still challenge and correction being issued. And that brings us to our third way of looking at the story, the model that Jesus is illustrating here for us. See, this story is not to justify or excuse sin. It's not to give us ammunition for us to be able to tell people and say, how dare you judge me until you walk a mile in my shoes that you cannot throw, throw a stone at me without being blameless yourself. The understanding that that is not what's going on here. What is going on here is that this is a story to illustrate repentance. It's a story to show us what forgiveness really looks like. It illustrates how we are to live out forgiveness and repentance in our own lives, in our own communities, as we extend it to others. But before we go there, look at how this interaction with Jesus ends. He doesn't say, make sure you never do it again. He doesn't say, go get that guy and bring him to me because i got to have a word with him. He doesn't say, you know what you did was wrong. He tells her to go and sin no more. He invites her into freedom. Now, do we think for a second, do we think for a second that this woman's life is settled at this point do we think for a second that she has everything figured out it's a possibility here you could read the story that she's a prostitute do you think she still has debts to be paid do you think she still has relationships that are toxic do you think she still has ties to things that are negative for her absolutely if she's caught in adultery the guy is not part of this conversation she's just been given this opportunity to move forward She's going to have to deal with the shame of being caught. She still has issues to deal with, clearly. But just like you and I and our pregame rituals and whatever we do to get ready to psych ourselves up, it's always about challenging ourselves to do more, right? It's all about challenging ourselves to try harder, to work harder, to get more focus. It's always about trying to say, how can I just squeeze a little bit more effort out of this, a little bit more productivity, a little bit more output out of this? How can I get them to hear what I'm saying? How can I teach them? How can I, how can I sell this thing? When we try to challenge ourselves, when we try to correct ourselves, it's all about us doing better. Those religious leaders are coming and they're challenging and they're correcting this woman so that she will change her behavior. But Jesus comes and he challenges and he corrects. For what purpose? 
See, hear this. The challenges and the corrections of Jesus always lead to freedom. The challenges and the corrections of Jesus lead to freedom. They do not lead to you having to try harder. They do not lead to a list of things for you to do. They do not lead for you to simply feel guilt and shame and I should do this or I shouldn't do that. The challenges and corrections of Jesus lead to freedom, not effort. Freedom, not shame. Freedom, not guilt. So when we experience that moment of challenge, that moment of correction, that moment, that sense that says, I am missing out on something. There is something more. There's an opportunity for me to follow Jesus, not for my benefit, but for the full life to be part of this mission of Jesus. We can't hide. We can't just try to bear down and work harder. We don't try to justify or explain away our mistakes. We just accept freedom. If you follow Jesus and you are experiencing shame, guilt, regret, you need to do some more work on following Jesus. You need to do some more work on embracing this freedom. You need to do some more work on saying it's all been covered. It's all been forgiven. If your first instinct is to come up with a plan to how to earn something or earn the right to something or fix something, then we're not really following Jesus. We're just trying to add Jesus to how we would typically interact with the world. We're just trying to add Jesus to how we would typically tackle a problem. The challenge and the correction of Jesus leads to freedom. Stop thinking about what other people are doing. Stop being so worried about how other people are screwing it up. They are, but so are you, and so am I. Stop worrying about what other people are going on because here's the other aspect of this story because you and I, we are the woman. We are the, the accused. We are the people holding rocks. We are the accusers. We are both of those people at different times. But look how the story ends. Ultimately, it's the woman and it's Jesus. Ultimately, it's you and Jesus. Ultimately, you have a moment. You have a, you have a place. You have a responsibility. You have an opportunity to react, to respond, to answer to Jesus. Because when it all comes down to it, it's just you and Jesus. And the question is, what are you going to do about it? See, we must, <coughs> we must respond to sin not by further saying how wrong it is. I think that's pretty clear. I don't think, I don't think we're, 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 we're worried about that. But we must respond to sin. If we are really going to do something about sin in our own lives, by further embracing the compassion of Jesus, further embracing the love of Jesus, further embracing the forgiveness that Jesus offers, because Jesus doesn't downplay the sin. Jesus doesn't just kind of explain it away or set it to the side. Jesus fully embraces it see it's not a question whether or not something is right or wrong the question is will we live will we move closer to jesus will we accept this compassion and then go and sin no more and repeat will we accept this and go forward because that is what repentance is so often repentance is kind of laid out as saying you will identify a problem and then you will work really hard to move away from the problem and at the end you'll thank jesus and that is backwards. 
It starts by us thanking Jesus for the opportunity that we can move forward. It happens when we say, Jesus, you are giving me freedom, you're giving me opportunity. Then we evaluate what's happened, and then we realize, oh, we can change this because there's, there's not something that we have to do. There's not something that we must do because of a threat. There is something better. It starts by us thanking Jesus. It doesn't end with that. That's what repentance looks like. See, in the end, it is just us and Jesus. There is still a personal decision moment. And it's not a one-time thing. I think it's an ongoing thing. Not because we have to earn it, but because we have to remind ourselves of it. This, this is what I love so much about baptism. This is what I love so much about baptism. You know what's special about baptism? Nothing. When it comes to what you're doing about it. You know what's special about baptism? Nothing when it comes to your, at your end of things. The only thing that's going on with baptism is that you are declaring in a very mundane, in a very routine, in a very elemental way, the cosmic, incredible, universal thing that has happened that Jesus has said, yes, I accept you. Yes, I forgive you. See, there's no effort or work to be done before you are baptized. There are no classes to take or things to fully understand because you're not going to get there. It's not about your resume or your results. It's not about qualifying. It's about embracing freedom. And I love, I love also that, that it's so disarming, right? Like, like, can you imagine another situation where a room full of people, fully clothed, not intending to get in water, and someone says, I'm going to get in water, and I'm going to go under the water, and I'm going to come out, and people are going to clap. That's a weird thing, right? That's an odd thing. It's disarming because it reminds us that this is not of me. This is not something that I am doing. This is something that I am accepting. See, I see this model this model here of, the, of Jesus forgiving this woman who's caught in adultery as a model for the work of Jesus, as a model for the mission that Jesus has. And we, we look ahead to the cross. Well, what happens at the cross? This is something libraries of books have been written about. What is actually going on here? What is actually happening? I think the first thing that we see is that at the cross, well, Jesus ultimately wins. It's, it's a triumph. Even though it ends in his death, it's a triumph over the systems of sin, of evil. It's a triumph over the darkness, right? Because Jesus willingly goes to that. And what do we see in this story? Well, Jesus wins. The condemners, those holding those rocks, they leave. Also, we see at the, at the cross that Jesus takes the punishment. He, he goes in our place. He is the sacrificial lamb of God. He goes in our place. He takes punishment that we should take, that we have earned. He takes the punishment, and when he's doing it, he doesn't condemn us. He doesn't condemn those who put him there. He prays for us. He forgives us. He extends this. He doesn't condemn the woman. He invites her to follow. And I think Jesus also gives us a way forward at the cross. Because at the cross, it doesn't end there. It goes to the empty tomb. It goes to Easter Sunday, saying that this is not how it ends, that death is not how it ends. It gives us a way forward in the same way Jesus goes to the woman and says, go and sin no more. See, in all of this, if we are going to be serious about the idea that the challenges and the corrections of Jesus, that the challenges of Christ are going to lead us to freedom, I think we need to ask ourselves a simple question. Are we desperate? Are we desperate for Jesus? Because think about this woman. She has been hauled in front of religious leaders in the middle of the temple courts, the hub of the city, she has been caught. 
And she realizes that things are spiraling out of control and her life may be over. She is desperate for help. And this itinerant rabbi slash homeless guy slash mystic slash prophet slash healer slash maybe he's the Messiah gives her a way out. Are we desperate as this woman is? Or better yet, do desperate people want to be around us? Do desperate people show up in our lives looking for help, looking for direction? As a church, are we a place where desperate people can meet Jesus? Are we a place where desperate people want to gather? Because John also writes in the New Testament, the letter 1 John, and he lays out this whole understanding of forgiveness, this whole understanding of repentance, this whole understanding of what Jesus has done. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, he says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. If we are fully going to embrace this, if we are fully going to move forward, we have to understand that the challenges and the corrections that we receive from Jesus are not there to make us work harder. They're there to make us embrace freedom. So I would ask you this. Next time you feel guilt, ask yourself the question that Jesus asked this woman. Who is condemning you?